Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown, where the discussion today is going to be about that question we all get. My child's having trouble at school. Could it be ADHD? We know the conversation can then be quite lengthy and complicated as we sort through the differential diagnosis. My guest today is Dr. Allison Schonwald, who's going to help us tackle that problem we all see. Dr. Schonwald is a developmental behavioral pediatrician and co-founder of Touchstone Neurodevelopmental Center. After her undergraduate education at Yale University and Medical School at the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Schonwald completed Pediatric Residency and Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics Fellowship at Boston Children's Hospital. She served there as faculty from 2001 through 2019. During that time, Dr. Sean Wald's roles included course director of human development, a required second year course at Harvard Medical School, medical director of a multi-site school problems clinic, the ASK program, and fellowship director in developmental behavioral pediatrics. She is currently an associate professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and faculty in pediatrics at Cambridge Health Alliance. Board certified in developmental behavioral pediatrics, Dr. Sean Wald's clinical interests include early diagnosis of autism and developmental delays, psychopharmacology for children with a variety of developmental disorders, cultural competence in families of children with, de- with developmental disorders, and transition to adult care. Dr. Sean Wald is the author of two books, The Pocket Idiot's Guide to Potty Training Problems, and ADHD in Adolescence, a Comprehensive Guide. She currently serves on the American Board of Pediatrics Subboard for Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics and the Massachusetts Board of Early Education and Care, while maintaining a very busy clinical practice and continuing to teach primary care pediatricians. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Sean Wald. Hi, Allison. How are you? Fine, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time. I know you're very, very busy. My pleasure. Well, I heard you speak at an AAP event and you were talking about, I think the topic was called psychopharmacology for primary care. And it was so practical and so helpful. And that's why I reached out to you. So I hope we can kind of touch on maybe some of it, not so much in detail, but I really wanted to pick your brain. So you're a developmental behavioral pediatrician, and I just wondered first, what made you decide to go that route? I did my residency in pediatrics at Boston Children's Hospital, and it was like walking through the pages of a textbook with every rare disease known to man and woman. And I um, wanted to be a general pediatrician, but had never seen a swimmer's ear or reduced to nursemaid's elbow. I didn't know how to put sutures in but I had seen congenital twins and I had seen every cardiac malformation. And so I didn't feel ready. 
I applied for two fellowships, a general, I applied for a fellowship in general academic pediatrics, and they offered me two fellowship options, one being the DBP. I think they misread my application. I said, no, 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 I applied for the general academics. So they said, well, we think you'll be really good at this. It was a, a mentor, Carolyn Bridge Mohan, who said, I think this is a better match for you. And I said, okay, well, if I do a three-year fellowship, I, it'll be that much longer before I have to start figuring out a real job. So I took it and within a year, I, I definitely was hooked and found it far more uh, suit, suitable to my, to my na- nature, I think, than primary care. Yeah, it's funny. I think those mentors make a big difference. When I started out, I thought I wanted to do OB and home births. And then I got in the OR with babies being delivered when things didn't go well. And I thought, no, that's not going to suit me. And I was pretty sure I didn't want to do internal medicine or surgery. And then I did peds and I'm like, yep, this is it. So I hear you. And the mentors really make a difference for sure. And I've heard that from lots and lots of guests. Well, the reason I kind of wanted to bring you onto the show is because I think you can give us some tips about what we see all the time. And that's when a parent comes into the office and says, my child is having all this trouble at school. The teacher said, I needed to make an appointment with you. Sometimes they'll say the teacher thinks he has ADHD. That that often happens. And they also expect that in this one visit, we're going to figure it all out. And so when you get that kind of presentation, how, how do you frame that with the family? So pediatricians ask this question all the time because it is so common. The best part is if at the end of the visit, they text you 46 pages of, of IEP or testing or neuropsych testing, right, for you to take a peek at. Right, um, right. <laughs> right. As you've got your hand on the doorknob. So I, I think the first thing is to, to assure the parents, okay, we're, we're going to figure this out, but we don't know what's going on yet. And it's going to take some time, right? It took, just took some time to get here. It's going to take some time to figure out where to go. And the first stage is going to be information gathering. So think of it as a symptom, just like you think of any other symptom. If someone comes in with fever, you do a workup. What is it a symptom of? If someone comes in with asthma, it doesn't, I mean, with wheezing, it doesn't mean it's asthma, right? So if you think of the school problem as a symptom, and now it's my job to figure out the cause, that helps give you a familiar and more comfortable framework that feels manageable. Otherwise, you feel like, how am I supposed to figure this out? Well, the same way you figure out everything else, because we know how to do this. Well, and I think this comes up a lot of times when we're not really prepared, like at a well visit and you know, you ask kind of routinely, how's school going? And you're hoping they're going to say, it's going great, or it's fine. And then they, you know, bring up this big concern. And sometimes I've just, you know, had to say, well, let's get a little information. I need to get some other background and let's schedule a follow-up. Or hopefully if it's on your schedule, you have enough time to do one of these assessments because I, I agree it takes lots of time. And the history, I think, is so important. Are there particular parts of the history that really matter a lot to you? Uh, so the timeline is what's most important to me. It really helps if you have known this child since infancy because you've you've heard all along and hopefully you have notes all along. How did daycare go? How did preschool go? Right. So hopefully you've been asking those questions. 
Um, if they're new to you, for me, they're almost all new to me because they referred to me, right, with, with this question. And so what's key is when did this first start? Or when did you first notice there was something developmentally different or unexpected about this child? ADHD doesn't um, pop up for the first time in sixth grade. Autism doesn't all of a sudden develop in fifth grade in, when you're six, right? So I want to hear what happened before. Now, maybe the symptoms were subtle. Maybe they weren't problematic. Maybe they were managed in context, but there's something. If, if, if it's sudden, a sudden onset, then that's a medical issue or trauma or some you know, sudden mismatch in your, in your setting at the moment. To me, it's the timeline that's the most important. Yeah, I think you hit on a lot of the common things. I think that we particularly, I think that the acting out kids are really tough, but then you get a lot of kids that are struggling with, you know, is it reading? Is it math? And so there, it's very multi-layered. So, I mean, as far as, you know, looking into that, teasing that out, can you outline what your differential process looks like? So I'm listening carefully in the zero to three period for developmental delays. I'm listening carefully for language and social connectedness. When he was two, did he have little friends? Did he gravitate? Was there one other kid he always liked to be with? Were In the, those toddler years, was there a make-believe play? Those sorts of questions push me towards an autism explanation. For the kids with ADHD, you often hear that this was always the most active kid. This was always the kid who, who never stopped, but he was three or he was four, right? And so it was, it, you know, with seemed okay, because there's always a four-year-old who's running around. Often the kids with the ADHD inattentive subtype and often girls that, that can present differently with all of these are, are much more subtle. Where you hear things like, you know, it was something a little off, but I can't put my finger on it. She was, people loved her. She did well. She was well-behaved. I, you know, I think she was fine. I guess I wondered, you hear a little, this little nugget of something. And for some of the boys who are more, more of a high functioning autism profile or an ADHD and attentive subtype, I'm also listening for language because language delays are often a precursor to reading disabilities. So, so that would be another hint for me. Yeah, those course, are. I, yeah, I want to hear. I'm sorry. Oh no, I was just going to say those are all great pearls, and I think ring really true. I mean, I, I, I can see those kids in my head as you're talking. I, I want to be asking also what was happening, where was this child, and what was this child doing. And if parents say, well, she was home with me. And I say, well, what were you doing? And they say, you know, errands. <laughs> well, what did she like to play with if she were home, right? Because it's a very different story to say she liked her play kitchen and she liked to look at books and she liked to put her dolls to sleep versus there was this one electronic thing. She liked to push the button over and over, right? That's very different story. Or she always needed to be busy. I always made sure to have many things because she needed to go from one thing to another. Or I had to get him outside all the time because he just needed to run. So I'm, I'm listening with my clinical ears to, to imagine what it was like to be with that child at that age. Yeah, those are, those are great. What, what 
are your tricks for kind of asking about that adverse childhood experiences, maybe trauma, that kind of thing? Do you have some language you like to use to to get at that? I tend to be pretty straightforward. I tend to say things like you're coming here for a comprehensive consideration of what's going on. You, you're looking for me to be thorough. So I want to ask some questions that might sound a little personal because they are potentially impactful for your child. Has there been, have there been difficulties at home? Have there been substance use issues? I particularly am concerned about that. I I don't necessarily say this, but because of, if we're looking at school issues, you know, those with substance issues who are often self-medicating, whether it's ADHD or a mood issue, or just, you know, constant difficulty with learning issues. So I want to ask about that. And it's, of course, a very different um, life experience if you've been in an enriched household with high quality preschool versus being home with maybe multiple kids with parents. You know, when I hear mom works during the night and dad works during the day and they alternate, I think, oh, my goodness. Right. What, what are the kids doing? Like, when are you sleeping? There's, and I understand that this is absolutely necessary for, for many families. But it does give me a different picture of what exposure the child had and therefore what to maybe expect at this point, given that exposure. Yeah, and I think you mentioned substance use. Of course, that brings to mind for me fetal alcohol exposure. And one of the ways I've thought about asking that is before you knew you were pregnant, was there any alcohol use? Because I think that way it's maybe less, you know, like, oh, you knew and you were doing that. So I don't know if you have any other tricks for getting to those in utero exposures. I try very carefully to use the same tone of voice and to make sure I ask every person, regardless of background. Mm-hmm. And I try to make it matter of fact as just a medical question. Yep, I like that. Well, in addition, you mentioned something that I think we all dread, and that's the, oh, by the way, I also have this report. So what kind of information do you like a family to bring to the appointment? I mean, an IEP, I'm sure, would be helpful if there are neuropsych evals. What other sorts of things do you want from other people around the child that would be most helpful to you? My favorite is to read the teacher's comments about the child, whether that's on the bottom of a Vanderbilt attention scale, which is what I generally use. Um, It's comprehensive enough. It's free. It's easily accessible. Um, It is not great for adolescents or younger children, but it's still the pros outweigh the cons, I think. I like to see the tone of what the teacher said. If I can't get a form, I ask the parents, can you have the teacher write a paragraph about how the kid is doing in school before you come in? If the teacher, for whatever reason, can't do the whole form. And that, to me, is what rises to the top. That's and I imagine if I'm the teacher looking at this kid, that's what I'm seeing from from my position, which is all I'm seeing. So kids with inattentive ADHD, kids who are smart enough with mild reading disabilities, kids with anxiety from the front of the classroom can look just fine. So I'm trying to imagine myself and what it feels like to be with that child. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for us to talk to other people that are in this child's life is really helpful. And maybe it's a daycare person, a grandparent might also be other folks. I can imagine. What about, because a lot of us are doing 
ages and stages questionnaires for the younger kids and then maybe the pediatric symptom checklist for those older kids. Do you find those helpful? I know they're, you know, they're kind of, you know, like a screening kind of thing, maybe not super diagnostic or anything, but do you find those helpful? I don't see a lot of them anymore as a specialist. So I was extremely involved in getting pediatricians to use them. They are, they have vastly improved our ability to identify kids who need further evaluation. The PSC, right, the cutoff scores will tell you who needs further evaluation. Uh, The ages and stages is very accurate in identifying kids at risk. Generally speaking, the kids who have a concerning ages and stages are sent to early intervention under three or whatever your zero to three program is, and then to school evaluation under five. By the time I see them, sometimes I get an M chat, but usually the pediatrician has done a great job going over what the parents reported and setting them up to be able to hear what I have to say. So I feel like it's a team, right? The pediatrician, we screen everyone, the pediatrician going over the results. This is what we're worried about. This is what we need further evaluation. I don't know what it's going to show. Could be this, could be that. And then when they come to me and I say, yes, it's that. There's much more credibility because their pediatrician also said it. Also, sometimes it feels to parents like dropping a bomb, right? If the pediatrician has already dropped the bomb, parents are in a different place in their process and they're ready to actually hear Mm -hmm. the data, the diagnosis, the intervention. Because when you first say, I think your kid has dyslexia or I think your kid has autism, parents don't hear anything else in that conversation after that word. So, so I think those tools are an extremely uh, an essential uh, part of the steps getting these families to where they're going. Yeah, I like that. And I did a podcast recently with a whole panel of guests on autism. And I think the big thing that they really hope to get across to pediatricians is please explain to parents what your concerns are first, because oftentimes we're the ones that are, as you put it, dropping the bomb. And it would go better for them if, you know, you somehow laid the groundwork a little bit. So that sounds a little bit like what you're saying. When I have given lectures on developmental screening and autism screening, um, you know, they have these often now in lectures when they were in person, you stuff to like do little small group conversations and then come back to the group. So my small group conversations would be turned to the person next to you and each one practice telling the other one. You've reported some language delays. I see your child is spinning and isn't looking at me. I'm concerned based on this profile that there could be some autism and I'd like you to see this specialist to get it evaluated. Just practice saying it. And that was because it is so hard to say. I understand pediatricians don't feel trained to to make a diagnosis and don't want to upset people unnecessarily. Pediatricians know what they're doing. When they're really worried about autism, they're right. And there's nothing that would make a parent happier than to be worried for however long and come in and be relieved <laughs> that it's not the problem. Right. Right. So it's only a it's it's only useful in the process. And I think about, you know, other diagnoses. I mean, the kid that comes in with prolonged fever and doesn't look good. I mean, those kids are in my head. I know those kids from my my past. And you get a routine CBC and they've got leukemia. And now I have to say to the family, you know, this is what I think is going on. And now, I mean, it's more of an emergency for sure, but, and I have a process to know what to do. So that's kind of 
just folds right into my my next question is that, you know, for a lot of us, we might be in urban centers, academic centers, where we have lots of access to people like you, maybe psychiatrists, maybe neuropsychologists, a lot of those sort of ancillary upper level kinds of interventions. But there's a lot of folks that are in small communities, rural areas. So any advice that you have for them as far as how they can, you know, best help their families? So for the kids with ADHD, you've gotten a history that rules out other things. They don't have atypical behaviors, unusual interests, flapping. They have friends, but they have the ADHD symptoms. You use your attention scales, which by the way, is a good thing to do when they first mention the problem for your 15 minute visit to say, yes, we need to have a longer visit. We need to have some data. I need other people. So you get your attention scales from the parents and from the teachers and have them come back. And ADHD is certainly considered a primary care diagnosis. And there are studies that pediatricians diagnosing even preschoolers are accurate in their diagnoses by and large. Pediatricians can then treat ADHD. And so there really shouldn't be a reason for for a, a huge group of those kids to need a subspecialist. Yeah, and I think you're right that most pediatricians, you know, we're pretty comfortable because I think, I mean, gosh, I've been in medicine for a long time. And back when I was a resident, I mean, we had short acting Ritalin and not a whole lot of other things. So we have a lot more choices. And I think over time, we've gotten pretty savvy about certainly the stimulants and non-stimulants. Just for fun, is there any particular med you like to start if you have those first kids or is there any, any tips? Well, you you do make me think of a funny story. When I was a, a fellow in 1999, I prescribed Concerta for a patient and I was presenting to an attending who said, oh, fancy, right? Because it was a brand new, it was, there was nothing else, right? <laughs> right, fancy right. Concerta. No, I think that we need to be skillful and know that there are different options and we want to choose the options that match whether you could, the kid can swallow a pill or not. If you want to cover all day or you want to cover into the afternoon, I might ask family history, you know, is everyone else in the family on such and such? Because then I might as well start that one. You know, I typically would start a stimulant. I very rarely would start with a non-stimulant. Kids with more complexity, more anxiety, autistic features, strong family history of psychiatric disorders. I might do short acting instead of long acting, thinking, this could make things worse. I'd rather about three hours than about eight hours. I like that. Well, and I think back to, uh, you know, back in the day when we only had short acting, I mean, we had to prescribe it like three, four times a day and it was just awful. I mean, I don't know, you know, the kids are marching down to the office and I, I think certainly the advent of having these long acting really was very helpful for families and kids and for us too, because. Well, if you ever pick up a kid at, at lunchtime at school and see the, all the line of kids waiting for their lunchtime dose, whose morning dose has worn off, a poor nurse. <laughs> I love that. Good point. <laughs> uh, that's a, quite the visual. <laughs> well, so you mentioned something about, you know, other, you know, anxiety, other comorbidities. And I think, gosh, when you get a kid that's just got straightforward ADHD and you prescribe a little bit of you know, methylphenidate, the light switch goes on. It's like magic. Everybody's happy. The kid does well. I mean, I wish those were the majority, but it seems like there's always these other things. 
And, you know, I, I'm just thinking about, you know, some of the screeners that might help, especially like with a teenager, you could do things like the GAD7, PHQ, try and get a few more kind of screen of symptoms. What's, what's your thoughts on how you start teasing that out? Because they seem like they're more often comorbidities than not. Well, you want to just ask the questions. Are you seeing signs of sadness and withdrawal or tearfulness? Are you hearing comments like, I wish I weren't here or I should just kill myself? You want to ask, does she seem nervous? Does she seem worried? Does she seem stressed and tearful? And use your routine screeners as you always do. So use your uh, PSC just as you always do. When you start having more concerns, you can quantify them with specific anxiety scales. So a spence and a scared are available. They're a younger, you know, for younger, I think they go down to I don't know, six, eight, um, free, not one of the, the spence or one of them is not easy to score, but you can do it and it's free to do. So I think you can still use your standardized tools. Uh, you can use standardized tools to evaluate. And then the question becomes, uh, what do you treat, right? Yeah. So of course, for for depression and anxiety, we always want to start with therapy. And given our state of a mental health crisis for children in America right now, that's easier said than done. Um, I suggest workbooks that parents would do with kids if there is no one to to do the treatment. And I suggest really pushing the school for meetings with the school counselor once a week. Um, That is a mental health professional. If you have integrated behavioral health in your office, of course, those are, you know, perfect kids that you could maybe have six sessions, eight sessions. If the, there is no intervention option and if there is no benefit from all of that or the symptoms are really paralyzing, then we treat with medication. When kids come in and you just can't tell if it's ADHD or anxiety, which is the chicken and which is the egg, right? Am I anxious? Is he anxious because he's inattentive and gets behind? Or is he inattentive because he's so anxious? If you really can't tell from your history and you don't, you ask the kid and you still can't tell, there's no right answer. There's no <laughs> Shoot. Right answer. Shoot. I wanted no. you to make it easy. <laughs> so what, the first thing you do is usually a stimulant. You think, well, I'll give it a try. At least I'll know quickly. You tell them this might work or might not. If it helps, you're golden. If they get more anxious, more upset, more withdrawn then you quickly shift and go to an SSRI. The issue with an SSRI is that it's going to take so much longer to work that if, you know, if it's the ADHD driving it, you've lost weeks. Yeah. Yeah. No, those are great suggestions. I did want to ask you, what workbooks do you like to recommend? I like, don't let the, don't let the gremlin eat your anxiety, something like that. I like any workbooks that kids have activities in. Oh, Starving the Anxiety Gremlin. Starving the Anxiety Gremlin. I like that one. Anything that if you open there are activities for the kids to do. I don't want just a book with text that parents are supposed to read to them. I don't think parents should be therapists, but we can support our kids in developing social emotional strategies. I, I think another one I'd another one I'd heard of was Coping Cat was another. So Coping Cat is a protocol um, that cognitive behavioral therapists use with kids. You you can probably get it. I I, I don't know. I've seen it in a clinical context, but it is meant to be used by a therapist. Ah, Okay. With with kids. So the other one is something more that parents could do with kids. Okay. Yes. 
Yeah, sometimes homework is a good thing. Well, I know that many of us wish that we could send send these tough cases to folks like you in developmental behavioral pediatrics or to child psychiatrists, but sometimes that's not an option. And, you know, we are prescribing and treating a lot of these kids ourselves, sometimes not comfortably so, and or sometimes we don't treat and that unfortunately those kids go without care. Are there some things that you suggest that we could, you know, educate ourselves and really improve our competencies? That's a great question. So the American Academy of Pediatrics has their NCE, their National Conference and Exhibition. That's where you and I crossed paths. There's always a developmental behavioral pediatrics track. And now it's an expensive conference, but now that it's it was remote again this year, I personally downloaded a bunch of talks that I didn't get to go to so that I can listen in my car or look at them when I you know, have some time. So I think that um, that's there and that's really geared for you, for general pediatricians. What else? There are um, a couple of handbooks that I think are useful resources. So um, the Zuckerman Augustine handbook of developmental, I think it's called the Parker handbook now, is very handy as a resource. I know the up-to-date subscription is expensive, but you know it's (laughs) up-to-date and it is, you know, practical and accurate. Yeah, a couple other things, and maybe you can comment on them since you're from uh, Boston. I know a long time ago, I took the Massachusetts General, had a psychopharmacology for primary care that was helpful. I know the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry has some great handouts. They're called Facts for Family or families, and they're awesome. They have things on medication. And so I thought those were really helpful. There's also um, Stephen Stahl from the, um, I think it's Neuroeducational Institute, has a book called Essentials of Psychopharmacology. And it's, it's kind of a pearls. It's not necessarily for pediatrics, but it goes over a lot of medication tips. Any, have you used any of those? So I did go to that conference 20 years ago, 25 years ago. It's a big commitment, big five days, full day. I did feel at the time it was still more geared for psychiatrists than pediatricians, but that was a long time ago. Then um, I don't know the stall book, but I certainly know the name. Um, And the one in between you mentioned was... You mentioned something else in the middle. I forgot what it was. Oh, the ACAP Facts for Family. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So I think both the American Academy of Pediatrics and ACAP have some very nice handouts that are meant for parents also. I mean, I'm not plugging up to date by any means, but they also at the end of some of the articles have handouts for parents that are helpful. There's the Autism Speaks has a toolkit about medication and other things, you know, for autism specifically. So I think that's a useful website. So I'm going to go out on, I'm going to go out on the limb and say that given all these resources and given the needs that we kind of have to do this. And I know a lot of people are like, yeah, I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't want to, I don't know it. It's not my forte. I didn't sign up for this, but I think the reality is it's just such a common presentation in pediatrics that we have to at least know some of the basics. Would you agree? Well, the literature, you know, the the research uh, supports that undeniably. The, re- the research clearly uh, shows that, is it 40? <laughs> the research clearly shows 40 to 60% of the time spent in primary care is on developmental behavioral topics. 
the truth is that we are really good at preventing disease. We're really good at recognizing and treating disease. And these are the morbidities that present and they take a whole lot more time. It's not looking in near and giving a prescription. So there's just no choice. I do hope that the framework shifts, that we all find this long-term care of our families and being part of their journey so satisfying. Part of the journey of 20% of families or so is having a child with a developmental difference. So we want to be part of their journey also. And your medical home should make you the point person. So it, it, it is where the field is now, where the population is now. There is a lot of joy to be had by being part of that journey and seeing those kids meet their milestones that might look different from other kids and you know, making their way through life. I remember crying when I had a patient, um, like in second grade, he made a friend. Oh, we were all crying, right? It was such a joy. (laughs) I've had several of my kids with living with autism that, you know, graduated from high school and have, you know, have jobs and relationships. I mean, you know, everybody wants that. And I, I would totally agree with you. For me, it has been the most satisfying thing I've done is to help families because, you know, this, these are, this is hard. I mean, it's there all the time. It causes a lot of distress. That's why I named this podcast pediatric meltdown, because we all know what meltdowns are and we see them. And, you know, these families are living with this day in, day out. It affects school. And man, when you can help, I mean, it's way more satisfying for me than treating strep throat. Although sometimes having a strep throat is kind of a nice, (laughs) a nice relief. It's a breather. But I would totally agree with what you said. And I do think that just doing kind of the interview piece, there might be some simple things to start with that at least bring some relief to the family. And I think that message that I don't know exactly what this is, we're going to find figure it out together and I'm going to ride the ride with you. And it may have some ups and downs like any chronic sort of thing. It's, it's all a journey for families. I did hear a, a talk and I was so upset because they said in the talk that the journey starts when they get the, when a family gets the diagnosis, but that's not when the journey starts. The journey starts and there's some literature about this. There's a recent article called the diagnostic odyssey and from interviewing par- parents and families using qualitative methods. They found the journey starts when you first recognize there is something different about your child. Mm, Yeah, it starts with the worry. It starts when you first say, huh, whether you do anything about it or say it out loud or ever let it come into your consciousness, it's there. So, you know, I like to say I've never told a mother something she didn't know. Maybe something she don't want to hear or she didn't know the words that I have for it. But the journey really starts with recognizing there is some difference. Yeah. And the next big part of the journey is getting someone to listen to you, mm. getting someone to hear you and evaluate your child. And the number of times people come in and still tell us the pediatrician said he was just a boy. Boys talk later. His sister was talking for, for him. Now, granted, there are probably bazillions of examples when pediatricians were absolutely right. We don't see those. We see them when oh, they didn't catch up. Mm. And, you know, you know what the developmental milestone expectations are of younger brothers versus older sisters? Exactly the same. We don't have later milestones because you're the younger brother, right? It's all the same. So, uh, you know, uh, 
I think pediatricians are in a really tricky position because most of the time they're right. Mm. But the problem is some of the time they're not. And so it's about really helping families feel listened to. Mm-hmm. So if you have a 15 month old who's not talking, who you engage, they feel totally connected. They are smiling and giggling with you. And you say, you know, I got to tell you, there are so many skills here. I hear you. He's quiet, but he is so social and, you know, doing so many other things. Let's just follow him closely. Just come back in in a month, come back in in six weeks. Now, I understand people might not have the availability and does insurance cover those visits. We live in a dysfunctional system, but ideally parents are listened to. It doesn't mean you just do what they say, right? But again, like you said, you join the journey because the journey has to start with the pediatrician hearing and seeing and participating. The next part of the journey isn't actually getting a diagnosis. The next part of the journey is getting services, Mm -hmm. right? So it's not actually the diagnosis that's the distress or the problem. I mean, it is, you know, in the moment, the problem is the problem. You know, if they're having a developmental difference and they need explicit um, instruction or intervention around it, whether it's dyslexia or, you know, mood dysregulation or sleep issues, right? If they need something, the the first part of the issue is what's going on. And so they need, they really need us to listen so that we can be part of the solution. Well, and I think pediatricians, one, I think we are really good at knowing normal development. I think that's our our bread and butter. So I think we need to listen to our intuition when we are like, huh, this doesn't feel right. But the other is collaborating with others. And for me, my best advice is call the teacher, call the therapist, you know, don't, don't go it alone. Reach out to a specialist if you need to, you know, if you're fortunate and you can get a neuropsych eval, that's great. But you you may not necessarily need to go that route. But I I think exactly what you said, though, about listening, it validates their concerns and you're not blowing them off. Even if you think the child is developmentally on target, the parents are telling you something. If the parent is so anxious and it really reflects the parent's state of mind and not the child's needs, well, what's going on with that parent? Where did that Mm -hmm. come from? And how is that impacting the child and the parent-child relationship, right? So it's, it's, it's thinking about this in a systems nature, right? That children are a function of their family and their community, the world they live in. What are they, what, why, where are these parents coming from? I don't know if you remember, there was an old article called Ghosts in the Nursery. Mm. And it had to do with what we bring to our parenting from our previous experiences. And it's very informative to think about. Gee, would um, that be called, would that be called ACEs now? <laughs> I think it'd be like generational trauma, maybe. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that um, if you grew up, you know, y- y- yeah. I mean, I think if you grew up exposed to trauma, you grew up um, with parents who were, um, not authoritative, who were authoritarian, or, you know, I, I think it's how does that inform who you are and what you bring to your parenting, right? It is effortful to parent differently from how our own parents parented us. Yeah. I, I'm wondering if kind of the, the final message might be to, to us is when you see this on your schedule, the first thing you may want to do is check yourself, take a deep breath, know that you can't fix everything in one fell swoop, be honest about that and, and be ready to listen first and, and 
you know, just ride the ride. And it can be very rewarding. Well said. (laughs) Well, I always ask my guests about advice they would give to their younger selves. So if you could go back and talk to Allison, the resident, what would you tell her? That being a doctor isn't about making a diagnosis and providing a treatment, that it's about participating in a process of wellness so that we're actually doing something by listening. We're doing something. We are intervening and being a meaningful part of the process and the wellness just by being part of the process. Yeah. Boy, it makes me think, I don't know if you've read anything by Abraham Verghese. He's such a lovely man. And he wrote Cutting for Stone, but he also has written several memoirs. He's an infectious disease person. And he was kind of on the forefront of some of the HIV. He was... um did his residency and maybe right out of residency in rural West Virginia. And he began seeing all these young men coming home from California and New York, and they were very, very sick. And, you know, they didn't know what it was. And it was, it was HIV AIDS. But he talks about one young man who was clearly dying, and he was coming in to see him. And the young man would open up his shirt so that Dr. Berghese could take a listen to his heart and lungs, even though he said it made no difference in his care. It was the ritual. It was the laying on of hands. And it was, I don't know, it was the most beautiful. It's a fabulous TED Talk. It is so moving. I think it's called In My Own Country. And I'll put the link in the show notes. But it is a lovely kind of embrace of the physician healer. That sounds great. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. I so appreciate this. And I hope that you find joy and time to spend with your family and loved ones and are able to refresh yourself because I know you work with tough, tough situations sometimes. And I appreciate you doing what you do. Well, thank you so much for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. A very big thank you to Dr. Schonwald for helping walk us through this very common presentation we see in the office every day. So here are my takeaways. Number one, when families come to us with a school or developmental concern, the first step is listening to the story and sorting through the timeline. When did the concern arise? When did the parent begin to worry that something was different? Number two, Frame the appointment by assuring families that we are there to help, that we will figure this out together, and that it may take some time to do that. Don't worry if you have to have them come back for a second or even a third appointment if you really need to get more information. Number three, in developing a differential diagnosis, think about the developmental trajectory. ADHD is not going to suddenly appear at age nine. And consider in that young group, Are there social and language milestones that are maybe lagging behind what you would expect? Because this is where we may pick up that autism spectrum disorder as early as possible. Number four, in the elementary age kids, consider learning milestones, social interactions, energy level, executive functioning, and consider ADHD, learning disabilities, anxiety, or maybe those kids with higher functioning autism, where the differences are really in the social interactions. Number five, 
For teens, the differential expands, and we may see more depression, anxiety, substance use disorder, eating disorders, or the late impacts of ADHD. Sometimes we'll see anxiety as the kid just can't keep up with the demands of school because of ADHD, and the ADHD is really the primary problem. Number six, keep the possibility of trauma in mind. Ask questions about difficulties in the family as it relates to the concern at hand. And she gave us some nice phrasing such as, I need to ask some questions that may seem personal, but it may really be important to what's impacting your child, and then proceeding with those questions. Number seven, collateral information is key. You may want to get the Vanderbilt, the Pediatric Symptom Checklist, the ASQ Developmental Screen, and the MCHAT as the first-line screeners, and they're very helpful, and they're all free. Consider then, as kids get older, or if there are concerns that arise, a patient health questionnaire, the PHQ, the Ask Suicide Screener, the GAD-7, the SCARED, when you need to further tease out mood concerns. Number eight, get feedback from teachers, even if it's just a paragraph. If they're not able to complete the Vanderbilt if they could even write a sentence or two about their experience with a child, that is golden. Number nine, when you have a diagnosis in mind, be upfront with the parents. Practice delivering this information. You shared some worries about your child's language and how he plays, and based on our conversations and our screens, I have some concerns that there may be signs of autism. And then you go on. You may have noticed that your child is struggling in school and grades have dropped. She's more withdrawn and irritable, and she has many symptoms of depression. She shared that she sometimes has thoughts of suicide that I need to discuss with you. Don't be afraid to be frank with families and be honest. Deliver the information and then stop and listen. Number 10, sometimes it is not ADHD, but sometimes it is just that. If you have a compelling history and collateral support from teachers, report cards, maybe a psych eval or not, this may be ADHD, and most of us are really comfortable with the treatment. Dr. Seanwald shared that she generally starts with a stimulant in these cases. It's quick to see response, and we all know how to kind of tweak that using all different types of stimulants. Number 11, Often it is way more than ADHD, and comorbidities are common. Depression, anxiety, eating disorders, substance use disorder, and again, trauma may all be impacting how this child is performing. Treatment may start with a therapy referral, but if it is not an option, perhaps you're in an area where you just don't have access to resources, you can consider what is most impactful. Is it the ADHD or the anxiety? You may want to start with a stimulant because it gives us really rapid information, but there is not really a right answer. And if you feel like the anxiety is more impactful, then you may want to start with an SSRI. And this is an opportunity where you can consider a discussion with a child and adolescent psychiatrist or a developmental behavioral specialist. Again, this is where access to the child psychiatry access programs across the country are so helpful. And I just reiterate that over and over in these podcasts. Again, I'll include the map that shows where these are in your state. Number 12, workbooks and resources are available for families. And I listed these in the show notes. 
Number 13. The journey does not start with the diagnosis. It starts with the worry. Listen carefully to parents and patients. And again, I can't stress that enough. It has come out over and over, particularly in the podcasts that we've done with parents, is that listening to them is the most important thing that they want from us. Number 14, get good at this. 40 to 60% of visits are about behavioral health concerns. That falls squarely in our laps. The American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, up to date, our AAP NCEs, and the AAP Mental Health Conference are all resources that you might find extremely helpful as you sort through many of these differential diagnoses. Thank you so much for joining me today. I know that these are common problems, but I hope that the voice of an expert can really help maybe find a pearl or a different way of approaching a conversation. Take care of yourselves, and as always, thank you for everything you do for children. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh, and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.